Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doin' Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. First up on the show, we've got Uncle Jack Charles, who is going to be talking quite a bit about a particular episode that he organised and that he was in last week in regards to looking at finding his family. And basically, we're going to talk about the lived experience of prison and not only that, really, but have, adding an extra flavour to the whole interview as well and talking about how he's going, what's what's happening with him in acting. But mainly, we're going to be speaking to him about um, Uncle finding his family. And just before we actually launch into that interview, I wanted to actually just read out a quote, which I found really hilarious. And I, I've actually got it from, from NITV. And Uncle says... I've been wanted for many years in the past. I remember being one of Melbourne's most wanted people. It was written up in the age, he said. It was a dubious honour, but I'm glad to be able to tell those tales. Now I can reflect where I've been and how I got out of that Kamaya and gotten to where I am now. So we're going to be speaking with him about that. We've interviewed Uncle um, over many years and I just invited him on because I wanted to talk to him about the, the episode of Who Do You Think You Are? And then after that, we will be speaking with um, Andrea from the Fitzroy Legal Service. Sorry, from the – oh, I I beg your pardon. We're going to be speaking with Andrea from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service and we'll be speaking with her about the findings from the Ombudsman and a a, a report that was actually written in regards to lack of disciplinary procedures – for prisoners and we'll start now by speaking with uncle jack hello uncle jack welcome to the program uh thanks very much marissa good to be on 3cr to be heard around uh uh, around the traps and uh, especially in prisons Absolutely, Uncle. And, you know, I'm so glad you've come on because my Braille computer has just chosen this time to reset, so I lost my script. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've saved the day. So just listeners, I'll, I'll complete that intro after we've spoken to Uncle Jack. So tell us, Uncle, what's been going on? Tell us about the episode of, of um, oh, Who Do You Think You Are? Who Do You Think You Are? You know, many of us are just... The stolen gents never get to discover the full extent of that lost, hidden, denied heritage of ours. And now, through the good grace of uh, SBS and uh, that Bob, who do you think you are? I have a high enough profile to be plucked uh, for them to uh, research through my DNA on uh, on uh, my family connections, my family kinship ties, and etc. Uh, and especially my heritage, my connection to the uh, uh, the mob in Tasmania through the Briggses and etc., going back uh, five generations to my great 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 grandfather Manalagena, uh, a big uh, warrior down there, leader. Uh, and uh, I was a little bit upset on the uh, the leg, uh, the Tasmanian leg of the journey, 
but very pleased with what I discovered here in Victoria. They found out who my real father was. He was a Hilton Hamilton Walsh from Cumra. So I'm proud to be able to say now, and many of Briggs' person, Tony Briggs and et cetera, and many people in the community were say, always telling me I was Yorta Yorta on my... Uh, so I am Yorta Yorta on my father's side. I know who he is. And uh, and lo and behold, I met, uh, as you saw, I see in the doco, uh, uh, um, uh, my brother, um, Grady Walsh, who works at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service over in Epping, that unit there, and uh, he's my brother. And I have another brother living in uh, Ballarat and two sisters alive living up in Swan Hill. So I'll make a pilgrimage to those places and uh, eventually get to meet them. But it, it is, uh, I feel a large sense of, uh, of completeness, uh, completeness, completedness in my, uh, uh, of who I am, uh, having been given unto me from who do you think you are by heritage. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I stand a, a little bit taller than my, my present uh, height at the moment. I'm only, uh, you know, a little bit uh, two centimetres short of five foot, but uh, I stand tall and prouder than ever now, knowing who the fuck I am. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Uncle Jack, I noticed such a wonderful power in you yeah. that that night of the episode. It was you, you. You were just powerful. Do you do you know what I mean by that? By the word powerful? Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. People are saying, is, is it, you know, we can't understand why you you're not angry. Well, I am. I do have a profound sense of piss offness uh, about Tasmania. What? Uh, George Augustus Robinson, the bloke who wrote extensively about the, the history of the Tasmanian blacks and the way he treated uh, Mano Legena, a five-times great-great-grandfather and that, you know. Uh, he was uh, my grandfather's Mano Legena's Judas Iscariot, I got to realise. so, And it's forced me to really, uh, you know, take the, the bull by the horns and uh, uh, seek an audience with uh, the Tasmanian Premier and the Education Minister also, uh, the Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews, uh, while we're while we're running hot with him, and uh, and the, uh, the State Minister for Education to uh, start uh, taking Indigenous history seriously and to bleed it into our schools' curriculums. We need truth in history onto our state schools' curriculums, and I've always known that uh, each state has got a unique story to tell, and it should be told. Absolutely, Uncle Jack. And one of the things that that I found really um, inspiring on, on, on the episode as well was the way that you, you went to all the, the different the different countries, didn't you? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. So yeah, you yeah. went to the different lands yeah, of, yeah, of yeah. your heritage. Yeah, yeah. Tasmania, how's that, eh? Again, up the camera, speaking with Uncle Colin Walker, Seeing my my father's uh, burial site, uh, seeing Grady Walsh, uh, my my brother, uh, he had a, a suitcase of dads, and uh, on the time uh, that we were, we were talking on the uh, down there at the uh, uh, Fairfield uh, Amphitheatre Tea Rooms, and that he had a suitcase of. He said, "I've got a suitcase of our dads here, Jack. I'll open it up, and lo and behold, there were in his beautifully." carved emu eggs in there, some are finished, some half finished. And uh, he said, Dad, Dad, Dad did there. Here's a knife similar to the one he used and etc. And listen, I, I, I'll open my computer, Jack. I've got him here, uh, our dad. Yeah. There it was, talking, and he speaks ever so well. Uh, he reminded me of Jimmy Little, the way he spoke. And then he sang too, and he re- definitely reminded me of Jimmy Little, and my early days of trying to make it into music, you know, uh, before I got into theatre. And so, uh, and he was well-dressed in a white piece suit, standing in front of a riverboat on the Murray there yep. uh, on Cumbragunga. And uh, I said, well, Jesus, that, that's incredible. You know, he, you know, he, he, I, I, I get my sense of, uh, of, uh, of, of good wear, of good mocker, good wearing good clothes, uh, from my father, you know, I do remember many a uh, 
many a policeman down at Paran Police Station were saying I was one of their best dressed cat burglars they've ever encountered. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm just so happy for you, Uncle, that you were able to find your family. And I sp- oh, uh, there's but- nothing like it. There's so many, so many people in our, in our prisons and new detention centres that That's right. very little inkling of the full extent of their heritage, etc. So, uh, and I believe that's a missing element that could be uh, reviewed and uh, for them to uh, uh, seek solace and start uh, begin to uh, take a closer look at themselves, uh, who they are and where they come from. Absolutely. I think it's a to know exactly uh, the big story of uh, who yeah. you, you are. Yeah. And listeners also need to know, and I'm not sure if we've got enough time to talk about this in detail, but that Uncle Jack appeared as a central character in the documentary Bastardry, and I remember um, seeing that, and then writing a book, and you've penned music, and you've done TED Talks and advocacy, <laughs> and it's it's just words can't describe, Uncle, the, oh, yeah, well, the, the respect no, well. I've got for you. Zooming in during the COVID period into the youth detention centres, uh, but also our uh, adult prisons has been a blessing too. We we did have a win with Daniel Andrews' government uh, some uh, years years ago. I gave evidence at a series of inquiries with the Wurundjeri mob in the city, going into Parliament, giving evidence as to the reason why we. We believe that certain criminal records could be expunged within the space of three, five and ten years and for some individuals even three months. We know that there are some crimes that can't be forgiven, but nonetheless, it was read in the lower house before I got into rehearsals uh, for a production that I was due to do, I was contracted to do with Elbitry Theatre, a theatre from Auckland, Mari Theatre, and... Uh, uh, just when I was uh, starting to rehearse, I got a message from the Wodunga mob uh, telling me, if it's possible, Jack, can you come back in and expand on it? The opposition were crying a little bit iffy and were wondering if Uncle Jack was being a little soft on crime. And I said, no, no, we're not going soft on crime. The Archie Race Foundation, of whom I work with, you know, uh, and that special raving ambassador and a public spokesperson for we, we work on the notion that we need incentives, and this is one of the prime elements of, of an incentive to uh, get people to seriously think about their future. You too can have your criminal record expunged if only you took yourself seriously and uh, and that you, uh, you, 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 prove, you you can prove to, to a court of law to have and eventually your criminal record expunged. Is it possible? Well, that's right. Is a time for people in the neck to start seriously thinking about who they are uh, and uh, and what do they want to do with their lives? Do they want to be dedicated recidivist? And the system, I've been, I was saying, you know, relies on uh, uh, people being dedicated recidivist. Uh, they're building more jails because people are going, you know, coming in and out of prisons and etc. So. Uh, uh, it's the job of an elder in my unique situation to talk to consciences of others and that. You know, I'm not such a tall poppy. Absolutely. Uh, you know, no, you're right. Uh, I'm only uh, two centimetres short of five foot, as I said. Uh, so, mm. so, But the point of fact is I have got something to say. I have got, uh, you know, uh, the ability to, uh, uh, to communicate uh, to people how to get off the methadone. You can take... Exactly. Control of it yourself and that, but you have to be seriously serious about it. And uh, yeah, you know, there, there, there's got to be a point at some time or another where you don't want to, you know, you, you don't want to regress. You want to, you don't want to you know, keep on repeating uh, the, 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 the muck ups that you've been existing and going back into prisons and etc. So, Uncle, the, you know, yeah. So that's my job. Yeah. And, uh, it seems to have been working because there's nothing I like better than when somebody will come up to me and tripping over themselves to tell me that they're off the methadone. That's right. Yep. So that's proof positive that uh, uh, what I'm what I'm advocating is that uh, 
you know, if at any point in time that you feel that you can take charge of uh, controlling your intake and your dosage yourself, you know, have a talk with your doctor and the chemist and determine that you'll come in every second day and wean yourself off slowly. Uh, that's a message uh, for people that are listening in prisons, our prison systems. But, of course, uh, that's the way I did it. After I came out in 2005, it took me two years to jump off mere 75 mil. Two yeah, years see? to finish off the doco at the same time. And by 2008, I was I was shot of uh, the, even the government-sponsored drug. That's right. Uh, and I came good, and uh, I, I, I touted myself as a walking, talking, you know, uh, uh, beyond reproach role model. That's exactly right. Uncle Jack, we're going to have to. I'm going to have to move on to the next interview really soon. But um, right. just really quickly, though, and I know we're probably not going to have time to talk about it, and it really is a most horrible topic anyway. But yeah. it, this particular thing needs to be placed into school curriculums in regards to what happened in Tasmania with the way that the women were kidnapped and all yeah. the seals were killed. I mean, it's awful. Yes, uh, the women actually uh, suffered uh, the most horrific death. Uh, the men were just merely killed. The women were actually tortured, tied to trees and etc. tortured uh, yep. before they were, they, they were eventually killed. And so this uh, history needs to be taught. And I think Year 10, 12 students in Tasmania are uh, are up for uh, learning truth in history. Absolutely. We can't whitewash the history. And we know that uh, certain states are, 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 have been uh, you know, putting forth uh, the uh, notion that... Uh, uh, their state's uh, Indigenous history should be told in our schools' curriculum, but I fear it'll be a whitewash. We we must have yeah. truth in history if we're ever going to uh, uh, to have a uh, if we're ever going to be uh, truly reconciled. Very much so, Uncle Jack. Thanks so much for coming onto the program, and I'd like no, to have you back very pleasure, soon. Marisha. Okay. <laughs> thanks so much. See you later then. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that was Uncle Jack Charles speaking about the episode of Who Do You Think You Are that happened on SBS last Tuesday. And we're going to be speaking shortly with with Andrea and I'll give you her full name in a moment. Um, I actually lost my script. We had a technical difficulty there. But I'll be um, continuing with that introduction in just a second. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And just a bit of a correction there. Um, we're going to be speaking shortly with Andrea, who is the Head of Policy, Communications and Strategy from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. And I'll have Andrea give us her, her full name shortly. But in the meantime, um, just wanted to continue with my introduction, which was rudely cut off um, because we had a tech difficulty with computers. So after Andrea, we'll be speaking with Megan Pierce, who is the Managing Lawyer, Social Action and Public Interest Law um, from the Fitzroy Legal Service. And I've invited both lawyers onto the show to speak about the findings of the Ombudsman in regards to lack of transparency and oversight in prison disciplinary procedures. And when I spoke to Andrea off-air this afternoon, we're going to be speaking about the, the Mandela rules and looking at how the recommendations of the report 
um, can, we're going to be looking at the recommendations and she gonna be, she's going to be speaking generally in, in regards to prisons as well. And with Megan, we'll speak about the, the, the report as well. So the lack of oversight and transparency in prison disciplinary processes and that's what we'll be talking about. And just very quickly, just a quote from the media release from the Human Rights Law Centre. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal human rights and civil liberties organisations have called on the Andrews government to take urgent steps to increase transparency and prevent mistreatment behind bars after a new report has highlighted serious deficiencies in disciplinary processes in Victorian prisons. The Victorian Ombudsman's investigation into good practice when conducting prison disciplinary hearings found that disciplinary um, hearings in Victorian prisons are still carried out in the dark with insufficient scrutiny, oversight or transparency. And on the line, we now have Andrea. Hello, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. In all honesty, today I feel like I've been walking through mud. It's just been one tech problem after the other. Well, I suppose you're lucky that we're all used to tech problems um, <laughs> thanks to COVID and living life on Teams and Zoom. I think it is the COVID, actually. It's, it sometimes, you know, fries the brain a bit. Now, I'm wondering if you could just talk about, you know, just state your full title and your full name, please, so that listeners are aware of who you are. My name's Andrea Lux and I'm Head of Policy, Communications and Strategy at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Oh, good on you. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about, start talking about the report and exactly what, what happened to initiate this report. Sure. So this is, um, I think, a really important report that the Victorian Ombudsman's released. It's looking into the internal disciplinary processes within prisons in Victoria. And um, this report follows on um, from another investigation by the Ombudsman previously, and they continue to get complaints about um, the processes involved for disciplinary procedures. So, so for example, some of the issues um, that they've come across and highlighted in this report are perceptions of, of bias, a real lack of proper record keeping um, and particularly uh, concerning is the lack of support provided to people with cognitive impairments um, who are um, engaged in these uh, disciplinary processes. Absolutely. And that really is of particular concern, isn't it? Yes. I mean, these, these processes, um, they can lead to... Um, referrals to Victoria Police, but it can also lead to um, suspension of privileges um, within the prison. So the, the outcomes of these hearings can have potentially quite serious consequences for, for people who are incarcerated. So not providing um, people with cognitive impairments proper support through that process um, is a real injustice that needs to be urgently addressed. Would you say that people in prison with a cognitive disability or mental illness are overrepresented? Yes, they are. And um, not only are they overrepresented, but the reality is we probably underestimate what that number is in any event. There's lots of people caught up in the criminal legal system who um, have gone through their lives undiagnosed and not provided with, with the relevant support um, that could have potentially um, kept them out of the criminal legal system and prisons to begin with. Interestingly, this report comes just weeks after Victoria's anti-corruption watchdog, and I did interview on this two weeks ago. Yeah, so this is two um, quite damning reports coming um, out in quick succession by um, independent statutory bodies. And I think this is really um, putting the Andrews government on notice that something is going terribly wrong in the prison system. And we really need to address, um, you know, the, the practices within and the cultures within prisons in Victoria. Did you want to talk about some of the, the general things that, that you wanted to discuss today? about prisons and also talk about some of the Mandela rules? Sure. So um, in in the uh, recommendations, the report does um, highlight some potential improvements 
um, that, that could be actioned uh, to better protect the rights of people in prison. Um, so, for example, uh, improving access to um, the Office of the Public Advocate for um, people who have a cognitive impairment and need that support through the process, um, ensuring that there's um, robust merits review for decisions um, and to have fewer and better quality disciplinary hearings. Um, but I think one thing that I would have liked to have seen more focus on is enshrining in legislation um, having, you know, stronger procedural fairness protections in place. So a lot of um, sort of these, uh, I suppose, uh, guidelines or protections sit um, not within legislation or regulations, but, um, you know, within uh, handbooks and um, uh, other sort of internal policy guidelines. So if we look, uh, for example, to um, the, the Mandela rules, so they're the United Nations standard minimum rules for the treatment of prisoners, yeah. um, the sorts of things that are outlined there we would really like to see in Victorian legislation. So that includes um, ensuring that someone who's going through this process has support, um, independent support, but also legal advice so they can properly navigate um, this, this process, um, as well as ensuring that, you know, the rights of appeal are really robust, that the person who's going through the process has um, access to all of the evidence um, in front of them or against them, rather, um, so that they can properly respond. Um, and I guess, although the, the report does consider some of those issues. I think it doesn't go quite far enough in, in making those recommendations around legislative reform. Let's talk about that a bit further. So what would be a grassroots example to emphasise that? I'm sorry, what was that question? So I was just going to suggest to talk about it a bit further. What would be a, an example to, to highlight what you're saying in regards to that the report hasn't gone far enough? Sure. So I think, you know, one of the, the examples or one of the um, incidents that they refer to is um, so someone who was um, expressing suicidal ideation. They were recorded as having um, a mental health condition and they, you know, resisted strip searching um while they were being moved into a, you know, quote-unquote safe cell. And um, perhaps unsurprisingly, they um, they resisted um, and ultimately they were charged with a prison disciplinary offence. So um, I think, you know, many people looking at that situation objectively would recognise that here's someone who's got a, an existing mental health condition. They are particularly vulnerable. Um, they're in... A real, at a real crisis point and the way they're behaving um, is not that they're, they're being disrespectful or um, trying to be difficult. Yeah. I think it's just more a manifestation of where the situation that they find themselves in. So one of the things the Mandela Rules um, considers is you know, ensuring that people aren't, um, I suppose, uh, that there aren't consequences for people within those sort of disciplinary structures where they're, they're acting in a way that really reflects their underlying mental health um, issue or cognitive impairment. So not, not punishing people um, when they have those recognised vulnerabilities. And I think if we had something like that enshrined in legislation, for example, that would be a really strong protection to ensure that these sorts of incidents don't happen again and we're not compounding um, the trauma uh, of, of people who are in prison. And, of course, we all know that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have been over-incarcerated. Do you think that that was a priority of the report? So the report does um, identify that um, the, the reviews the, the reviews of the different hearings that they did um, didn't um, perhaps look as, as extensively as they might have liked into cases of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, so I think... That's probably something that does need to be considered further. Um, and also particularly looking at what sort of culturally uh, appropriate or safe supports might be provided to Aboriginal people going through disciplinary hearings. Um, 
you know, there are uh, Aboriginal liaison officers or wellbeing officers that might be able to support people through that process, but they're not independent to the prison that is, um, you know, holding people. Um, so I think that it's, it's pretty questionable what sort of support might be able to be truly provided from someone who is um, employed by the prison and works with the prison. Um, so I would think that that, that needs, there needs to be some more attention um, uh, brought to, to those particular issues. That's a very, very interesting concern, isn't it? that report didn't have that priority there. Yeah, and look, I think part of the reason might have been um, the the real uh, issues around record-keeping that, sure. that this report um, uncovered. So I think when you don't have as many records available to you, um, it's a little bit harder to conduct a review. Um, and I guess, like, that's probably a, a good segue for me to... to discuss something else that I think is really important when we're talking about um, prison oversight. Um, I spoke with you briefly earlier around uh, implementation of detention oversight under the UN protocol, the um, optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. And under that protocol, what's required is for the Victorian government to set up or designate detention oversight bodies that regularly... Um, conduct visits to places of detention. Um, frequently, these are unannounced visits. And their role is to um, go into places of detention, speak directly with people who are detained. That's a really important part of gathering evidence and triangulating evidence and ensuring that recommendations are really strongly based in um, the concerns and the issues for, for people who are incarcerated. Um, and arising sort of from those visits, they're in a position to make expert recommendations to the detaining authorities, to the Victorian government on how to mitigate risks of torture and ill treatment of people in prison. Um, so I guess having regular visits such as that would be able to uncover um, sort of failures, for example, in record keeping um, that might really limit um, sort of other oversight mechanisms such as um, the, the Ombudsman's investigation. Andrea, thank you so much for coming onto the program. And as you know, I've also invited Megan as well because I, I wanted to talk to you first about looking generally at the recommendations and I think we're going to have a look in a bit more detail about the report um, in, in a second. Are there any final comments that you wanted to make before we finish? I think um, really the, the, the thing that resonated with me the most in this report was... Um, the need to actually just change the legislation. We need to have these protections in legislation. As long as they're in policies and guidelines, I just can't really see any significant changes um, kind of transpiring in the prison system. You know, what, what, what is a privilege versus what is a right? We should have that in legislation. Um, the sort of uh, the natural justice or procedural fairness um, that should accompany all disciplinary hearings um, should also be prescribed by legislation. Um, so I think that's probably my, my biggest takeaway from this report, that the real, the real gap that we have in that respect. That's an understatement. I mean, I am not holding my breath there because, correct me if I'm wrong here, Andrea, but the, these disciplinary hearings, they're more within the prisons, aren't they, not within the courts, right? Yeah, absolutely, and that's why we need to have a lot more transparency and accountability um, and support for people going through that process because it is it is all within the prisons. And I think, you know, there's so many levels of complexity and concern around this, but also when we look at the fact that we have private prisons um, as well in Victoria, so ensuring that we have that consistency across, you know, private and, and public prisons as well requires really, I suppose... An overhaul. Indeed. Than Indeed. Andrea, thank you so much for coming onto the program, and I'm sure we'll be having you back, I'm hoping, very soon. Not a worry. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Bye bye. bye.
And that was Andrea Lax, who is the Head of Policy, Communications and Strategy, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. We're going to be speaking shortly with Megan Pierce, who is the Managing Lawyer, Social Action and Public Interest Law um, at the Fitzroy Legal Service. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of factual filmmaking. Highlights include Cry of the Forests, a look at WA's sacred southwest forests and the activists trying to protect them. Mental as Anything, a heartwarming story about what it's like to live with mental illness. The Price of Truth, a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with never-before-seen interviews. And many more, July 21st to 31st at Cinema Nova. A 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And we're going to be continuing our discussion presently with Megan Pierce from Fitzroy Legal Service. And she's going to be speaking in a little bit more detail about the, the Ombudsman's report. And I'm hoping that I can speak with Megan about the fact that prisoners are out of sight and out of mind. And, you know, I'd really like to have a look with her about the human rights and the, and, and the Victorian Human Rights Charter as well. Hello, Megan. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. It's lovely to have you. Now, tell me, Megan, can you talk about the report? What's it called? What's the title of the report? Oh, gosh. Um, I've got I believe it's... It doesn't, doesn't necessarily stick in the mind. It's investigating, yes. It's good practice when conducting prison disciplinary hearings. That's it. But I I actually, I liked um, what you just said as a potential title, out of sight, out of mind. Um, Absolutely. And this is, this is the problem here because, you know, one of the things that I find really concerning is the fact that these disciplinary hearings are not subjected to media attention normally, and they are internal investigations, aren't they? Yeah, they are, Marissa. And if I could, I just want to check before I go on. Of I course. Think I'm, am I pronouncing your name right? Marissa yes, you are Marissa? indeed. Marissa. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. My apologies. No, you're right. Um, I think you make a really important point, And when you consider that point against the fact that um, the Ombudsman says in her report that about 10,000 of these hearings are conducted each year. I mean, that's an extraordinarily large number, particularly when you consider that... Um, what we know about the number of people in prison. So there are two ways of measuring that, um, and I'm sure many of your listeners, listeners would be familiar with this, as would you. But um, there are two ways of measuring that. One is called stock data, or it's the number of people in prison on a given day, and then there's the number of people who move through the prison, so who enter prison and who leave it in a 12-month period. And so we know that on the 30th of June last year, there were over, over 7,000 people in prison, Um, Over 400 of those were people in women's prisons and um, just shy of 7,000 were people in men's prisons. Um, And we also know in terms of the number of people moving through the system that in the 12 months of the 2019-2020 financial year, 12,665 people entered a prison in Victoria. Um, 1,600 of them entered a women's prison and just over 11,000 entered a men's prison. And so... When we know that there are 10,000 prison discipline hearings every year, we, can't, we don't have a huge amount of information about um, like who those hearings are for, but what we can say is that either the vast majority of people who enter the prison system are subject to at least one prison discipline process or some presumably significant proportion are subject to the process, process multiple times. Um, and the one other thing I'd say about that is that, like, when you have so little transparency around a process, um, that has really significant impacts. Like, that's just something that should trouble us all as a society. Um, and I guess the, the repercussions that I refer to include that, um, and I, I can talk about this in a bit more detail when we turn to the detail of the report, but yeah. we know that um, people can be fined as a result of an adverse finding in a discipline hearing. Um, we know that people in prison earn about $8 a day for the work that they do. So if they're fined $60, that's an enormous impost on them. And it can mean that things like they can't make phone calls to loved ones or um, they can't buy things that they need that are as necessary as folks. Um, they can lose what are um, 
offensively called privileges, so contact visits. Um, this is obviously, this can be particularly distressing for everyone, but particularly for Aboriginal people and I think of women whose children are in care and if there's child protection involvement and they're not able to see their children for a couple of weeks because of the outcome of, of a prison discipline process. We know that parole applications hinge really heavily on disciplinary hearings, and yet we have no idea. We have so little insight into what's happening in these proceedings, and I think the the ombudsman's reports really um, highlight uh, the ways in which these hearings can be um, lack transparency and be unfair. Absolutely. So, so the consequences for a prisoner can be serious. Absolutely, enormously, and those consequences will con- be constituted by the, um, you know, the penalty that they might be issued in the context of the hearing. So, um, I might just quickly outline um, the ombudsman yep. uh, sets out the process quite clearly in in her report, and she notes that there are basically three parts. So, there's the decision to charge and investigate, there's the hearing, and then there's the decision about punishment. And she found some problems in in each of those parts of the process. Um, in terms of so going to that sort of like last component, the decision about punishment, what she found was that there was enormous variability between the prisons about how, how particular um, so-called conduct was uh, punished. And so she said she simply wasn't able to identify any trends. So that suggests that it's just, um, you know, that says to me that it's really, really arbitrary um, and that's really unfair for people going into those proceedings. I think... The other thing that it suggests is that, um, like, it would have been really great to see a bit more information about, you know, what is the total amount that people are being fined in prison each year for yes. um, disciplinary proceedings? You know, for all we know, it could be in the thousands, tens of thousands. And when you consider that people earn $8 a day for their work or thereabouts, and that's only those that can work, like, what does that mean in practical terms for people? What what are they having to forego in an environment where they're already, um, you know, deprived of their liberty and contact with their family? Exactly. Are, Go on. Sorry. Sorry, Marie. So, um, did you want to ask a question? Or uh, no, no, no. I was just about to say that that uh, you know you've you've described it really well, and and it's, it's really important that we go into these findings in a lot of detail. What were you going to say? Oh, I, I was just going to add that um, not only can the penalties be fines, but they can also um, involve, uh, and I referenced this earlier, losing what are described as privileges um, and which many of us would just consider, you know, the necessities to live a, a, dignified and, uh, a dignified life, but they include particularly contact visits. Um, and one thing that the report addresses, although not in, in, any, in a great deal of detail, is that um, often what will follow a uh, disciplinary charge, if you like, or the allegation that someone um, committed, broken a prison rule, is um, their segregation or their placement, a person's placement in what are called management units, which we all know um, is much more akin to solitary confinement. Um, And that's also part of the penalty. So what you might might have is someone who is charged with um, uh, a disciplinary offence there's a hearing, they lose their privileges, but before the hearing they're also placed in the management unit and all of that um, could flow from uh, what might be a relatively minor breach of the rules. So compounded with all this is the the wrongdoing and also how inappropriate, uh, not only is there inappropriate behaviour by some officers, those, there's cover-up as well by not having accurate and consistent record keeping doesn't that also, um, how do I say, impact negatively on the report that there could be scant information about that, those oh, issues? Absolutely, Marissa, and I think that's um, like that is a, a point that the ombudsman canvasses in quite a bit of detail, um, and just how poor the processes are and how unfair they are, and um, or that they can be. And I think one thing that you know she says a couple of times is that it was it's just it's hard to tell because um, it's really hard to assess what's happening because the record-keeping is really wanting. Um, And I I jotted down some of the particularly striking process failures um, or things about the process that she highlighted as being unfair, and I thought I would just 
speak yeah. to them briefly. Go for it. Yep. Because um, you, yeah, you've you've picked up on them. Um, and so one of the first points she makes is that there's a real risk of bias. So the hearings are often conducted by officers from the same unit and almost always within the same prison as um, where the alleged offence occurred. And so that, you know, invites an understanding, an understandable understandable concerns about bias, um, and there's certainly no appearance of independence in that context. And she gives an example in her report of um, a situation where charges were ultimately dismissed because the person overseeing, the person involved in the, dis- the hearing and the decision to punish was involved in the... Um, the incident that led to the offence being the, the charge being laid. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, in, and in any other context, that would just be um, that would be an extraordinary uh, an extraordinary arrangement in any kind of context. You know, if we were out in the community, people would just be horrified if they had to um, you know appear before uh, you know what do they say, judge, jury, and execution. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing that um, she, the Ombudsman raised concerns about is this, uh, what she describes as uh, pre-hearing discussions which aren't recorded and this goes back to your point about record-keeping being really poor. Um, and so she, uh, she noted reports of people in prison essentially being induced to plead guilty on the basis that um, with some promise that a certain penalty would not be imposed if they did in fact plead guilty. And then, of course, you know, those bargains are struck behind closed doors and not recorded anywhere. And um, no one, no one honours those bargains in the end. Um, and the example she gave, uh, which is a really troubling one, was of a person who had been told that if they um, their, their disciplinary offence related to um, like possessing illicit substances, or I think, um, sorry, Marissa, I'm getting the language wrong, but basically, you know, That's they had okay. a drug on them that they were they were alleged to have a drug on them that they. That's right. To that have. was Lee, I believe, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, Lee, and um, they were told that if they pleaded guilty that they wouldn't be taken off the methadone program. Yes. So they did plead guilty and they were taken off the methadone program. I mean, apart from the health consequences of that, um, which are just, you know, horrifying for that person, um, you know, that that conversation, that that person acted, that Lee acted on the undertakings that were made in that conversation and they weren't honoured is, um, you know, terrible and there's no there's no record of that. Um, I think the, the thing... Another thing that really was troubling that the report highlighted was that um, the, when people are given notice of what is alleged against them, uh, it's in really general terms. You know, it might be something as vague as, like, disciplinary infraction. That's right. And when you have no access to legal advice or, or advocacy um, or any kind of support, responding to something so unclear just, you know, seems impossible Absolutely, Megan. And indeed, the Ombudsman investigated the complaint but was ultimately unable to substantiate the allegation that Lee had been abused by prison staff during the initial interaction. Is that right? Yes, yeah. And I think um, I was really struck by a case study that I think is a bit linked to Lee's, which is that I think if people had access to independent advocacy throughout these proceedings, they would be much better placed to genuinely make the case that they want to make in the context of the disciplinary hearings. Um, The Ombudsman refers to the fact that people are invited to um, bring witnesses and question witnesses in the context of these hearings, but there are so many barriers to that occurring meaningfully. You know, they have to give uh, the requisite amount of notice and they have to have access to people and then there are all these restrictions on the type of witnesses that people can get. Um, can bring and, and ultimately any request to call witnesses can simply be refused without a written reason. And so if you think that people are, you know, going up, going into a hearing which involves a person who could have been involved in the incident, they might be acting on the basis of some pre, um, you know, pre-hearing conversation where they've been promised X, Y and Z, but they can't rely on whether or not that's going to happen. They don't know exactly what it is that they are required to respond to uh, and they're not, you know, they haven't been able to call witnesses and in all of this they have had really, really limited, if any, access to um, independent advice or advocacy. You know, it just seems like pretty insurmountable burden and we know that 10,000 of these kinds of processes are happening each year. 
Absolutely. And one of the things that struck me as well is when I think, I believe there was, a, and I, this report was conducted over private and public prisons, wasn't it? Yeah. So there was a particular prisoner that I was reading about in the report who didn't didn't want to do the the strip search, and there were reasons for that. Yeah. And they did a public hearing, a preliminary hearing, even though the prisoner apologised. Sorry, yeah. disciplinary hearing, and the prisoner apologised. So yeah. why why is that necessary? Why is it necessary to actually have those hearings? I'm sure they could be avoided. This is all about this is all about um, torture. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't have an answer for you, Marissa, about why it's necessary to yeah. do those hearings. I mean, I think it's a product of the power structures that are, yes. you know, as you say, designed to oppress and torture people in these systems. And, I, and this and is I just think, a question I was throwing out to listeners, but go on, yep. Oh, no, I, I don't want to interrupt you. No, no, you go, i finished. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I, I, you know, one of the key reflections I had on reading this, um, you know, and I caught the... I caught the end of um, Andre's interview, and I, you know, I really agreed agree that there needs to be, you know, like real, real legislative reform. Um, and I, I think we could we could reform this. Pro- we could legislate that this process be improved, respect human rights, you know, respect the kind of principles of fairness and um, procedural justice that we would expect to see for those of us, um, you know, who are fortunate enough to be living in the community. Um, but if if there isn't that um, you know, if there isn't more independent support and advocacy also provided, I think there's a real risk that, um, you know, people still won't get uh, improved outcomes. And, you know, I, I was struck by one of the um, one of the ombudsman's... Um, I was struck by the ombudsman's recommendations about... Uh, comments, sorry, sorry, Marissa, I'll find my words again. That's right. Um, she, you know, looked a bit more closely at the particular experiences of people in prison with intellectual disabilities, cognitive impairments, um, quiet brain injuries and mental illness. Um, and, you know, she pointed out that there is a support service available to people in those situations, but that, as far as we know, it is entirely volunteer-run. Um, the Office of Public Advocate, who runs that service, have been saying consistently for years, as I understand it, that it's, you know, woefully underfunded. Um, and then there's really variable take up by the by the prisons uh, to uh, contact the office of the public advocate and uh, engage volunteers available through that support service to assist um, people in prison with intellectual disabilities who could benefit from that support. Um, and the ombudsman makes some you know fairly strong comments about how valuable that support could be, including drawing on an example where the outcome of a prison disciplinary process changed because of the support that was available to that that person in prison. Absolutely, absolutely. And indeed, I think you're part of the media release that was prepared by the Human Rights Law Centre and there's quite a few very good quotes here from both you and Andrea as well. Yes. Um, And one of the things that I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here or perhaps you'd like to comment on it, Mm. is what's come out of the report is that there needs to be an implementation of proper oversight of conditions and treatment in detention. Yes, absolutely. And I I heard uh, and completely agree with everything Andrea has to say uh, on this topic. Um, I I won't descend into the details because I'm not across them super well, but um, some years ago Australia committed to implementing what's called the um, the optional protocol for the Convention Against Torture. And basically that would see um, prisons have unannounced visitors who would be, as Andrea mentioned, um, able to speak directly with people in prison about their treatment and the conditions of their detention. And I think unless we get a really, really strong and independent, um, strong and independent oversight into Victorian prisons, we're just going to keep seeing um, the, the kinds of findings made by this ombudsman about the fairness in these proceedings and the really troubling troubling findings that were made by the independent um, broad-based anti-corruption commission a couple yes. of weeks ago um, about, you know, the culture in prison and, and um, the, the conduct of prison guards. Exactly. And who will guard the guards, as it says in the report? <laughs> exactly. Well, no. and I, I think if I 
could just add there, one of the things that, um, you know, we would really love to see more of, but as well as, um, you know, independent, staunch and legislated oversight of prisons is better access for people in prison to advocacy and lawyers that relate specifically to the conditions of their, the conditions of their detention and their treatment in detention. At the moment, there is the small volunteer-run service um, uh, by the Office of Public Advocate. People are able to contact um, Legal Aid's free helpline, um, but that's not a dedicated service. And I was speaking with a colleague earlier today who mentioned that apparently wait times are, you know, can be really, really long. And I've spoken with a few people through our prison advice service who say that um, they, they find it really hard to get through to that service. And then there's mm. um, Fitzroy Legal Services Prison Advice Line, which you know, does an amazing job, but runs um, is open one day a week, and we have to people have to already be on our um, sorry our phone number has to be on people's yep. calling list. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I was speaking to the lawyer who runs that service earlier today, and she was saying, you know, she's painfully aware of the extent to which we are not able to meet demand or reach the people that we we would like to meet uh, reach, um, and you know, one of the things is we, ha- we we hear from a few people, we get a few quiet inquiries about prison discipline. Yeah. Um, they're often after the fact, so it feels like it's, you know, kind of too late. Um, but we just have, we have a really opaque sense of um, of what's happening in there because it is such a, um, uh, like a dark environment. Absolutely. What's the link for the report, just quickly, because we've got about a minute left? Uh, yes, for the Ombudsman's report? Yeah. Uh, it is. Um, do you want me to read it out? Yeah, please. Yeah, that would be fantastic if you've got I, it. I am actually just going to have to um, look it up. I no, no, that that's you okay. Can, you know what? Because um, we're going to. I've got to go in a minute. But okay. you know what we'll do? We'll just tell them to Google Google the Human Rights Law Centre, and it should be on their website. Yes, actually. The, the, and the, the, you can access the report through the media release. And I am just looking, if you go to the Ombudsman's webpage yes. and click on a tab at the top of their page that says Our Impact, they list all of their current reports. And the top one, the top report, is invest, the investigation into the Ombudsman's report. Megan, thank you so much. You've, just, you've done a wonderful interview with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. And that was Megan Pierce from the Fitzroy Legal Service um, speaking about the Ombudsman re- Report. Ombudsman's Report, I beg your pardon, um, in regards to um, lack of oversight for prisons. And we'll be going out now with our theme song, Blackfella, Whitefella from the Rumpy Band. And stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. Bye. Are you the one?
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.